You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, church, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been going through and walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're thankful for the opportunity to continue in that journey this morning. As you guys know, Matthew 21, it began the last week of Jesus' life, and everything started to slow down. Everything started to become more meaningful, and everything was intentional. And we witnessed Jesus' deliberate attempt to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, the one prophesied to be the Savior of the world. You remember the many aspects that Jesus has already shown us of his authority, his, his, of being the Messiah and having authority. You remember him coming in to Jerusalem, riding humbly on a donkey, receiving praise and worship from the people. Remember how he cleansed the temple so that the Gentiles, the outsiders, could have a way to be healed and to be known and to be seen. Now we see, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus' authority being challenged by the religious elites of the day. And we've seen Jesus endure the trifecta, if you will. Last, uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, we saw him um, overcome a political debate. You remember the question from Matthew 22? Is it right to, to, is it right to pay uh, taxes to Caesar? We just read uh, in this, today's scripture, a biblical debate for the Sadducees and the resurrection, where the question came up, Jesus, what does the resurrection look like at the end? Those who didn't believe in a resurrection questioned him about the thing that they actually didn't believe themselves. And today we see a theological debate. We see that in verses 34 through 40, where Jesus is questioned about the greatest command. I love what, um, uh, again, David Platt says about this section of Matthew. He says, Matthew has made clear up to this point in his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the, the entire Old Testament pointed forward to, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom is eternal. Yet in light of these glorious truths, not everyone responded to such authority with submission. Last week, we saw Jesus challenge the status quo of establishing an unnecessary dichotomy between one's earthly citizenship and one's heavenly citizenship. Jesus helped us to see that it is right to give what is unto Caesar, taxation, but it's also even more importantly to give God what belongs to him. And what we learned last week is that our citizenship, while our citizenship in this nation requires that we pay money for the services that we receive, we also learned that our heavenly citizenship in the kingdom of heaven requires that we pledge to God our primary obedience. This week, Jesus invites us to embrace the nuance of this dual citizenship by giving us two parameters for that. Number one, loving God. Number two, loving others. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. God, we praise you for this day. As always, take my little, make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. We do love you and praise you for your good God and King in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So the question that we bring up today is, is quite simple, but also quite perplexed. And I'm going to bring this big old board up here so y'all can see it, hopefully. Somebody said, oh my, this is huge. It is huge. And the question I want, to, I want to ponder with you guys this morning is this. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? Now, I, I've drawn up this example for us to look at together because I think it's important for us to consider this question. What does it mean for us to love God? There's a lot of different ways, a lot of different things that we see or, or even that we practice that we may know about or, or not know about. I want to talk about two ways that we love God. The first way is this. The first thing that we do to love God is we list him among all important things, right? So everyone can see this list, hopefully. I checked in the back. I can see it with my glasses on. If you can't see it, I'm sorry, but I'll read it for your hearing. How about that? So the first thing we can look at is all things that are, what is the most important things in your life? Identify them and then list them out. So I did that for us in a general sense, I'm not, this is not my list or anything like that. I, it's, it's a part of my list, but it's not my list uh, like to the T. But this is all important things. So God, right? We probably say God is hopefully, right? A part of that. Family, right? Friends, that's where we get kind of iffy, you know, if we have a lot of friends or if we don't, I don't know. Career, it's probably in there somewhere. And then last one, I, I put hobbies. I didn't know what else to put down there, but I just put hobbies, Okay. These are the things that we find most important, and, and this is a really good way to love God, if you will, uh, but, but here's, a, here, here's a problem with this listing all things that are important, and we see this even in our own lifestyle, right? We lump everything together, and we put everything in the list that it needs to be because it's important, but here's what we do, right? Our day probably consists of us hanging out with our family, loving them, going to work, right? Doing a good job there. And maybe if we're lucky, right? Doing some hobbies. While these things are important, what it does is that when we look at life like this in this right aspects of all things that are important, we just list them together. While we do, while we do identify the most important things in our lives, if we get two or three of these things on our list checked off, we probably feel like we've done a good job, which is not a bad thing, not a bad thing. Another way we can look at our lives is not listing all things that are important. Another thing that we can do is all things that are in order, right? So not just listing the things that are important, not just grouping them together, but now what we'll do is we'll take these things and actually create an ordinal data. We'll actually rank them from the most important thing to the least important thing. So the number one thing has to be God, right? I mean, it has to be, right? We're in the church. It has to be God, right? So God is number one, of course. Give me number two. What would number two be? Family, all right, thank you. Thank you for playing along. I appreciate that. What about number three? Video games, all right, hobbies. I'm taking whatever y'all tell me, so there we go. Hobbies, yeah, let's be honest. There we go. We still have fam, we have, uh, no, we have friends and we have career. Friends, okay. Let's see how that goes. And then we'll put career last says my 12-year-old daughter, which I understand. I get it. I get it. I get it. You don't have a career yet, so I get that. I understand that. We can, we can, we can group things together, right? The most important things to kind of do, do a checklist here, or what we can do is order them from least 
from greatest to least, right? The most important things to the least important things. This looks really good on paper, but it's very bad functionally. Because what happens is this, is that when we list them in order, we know what's important, but just because it's important, it doesn't mean that it gets primary or gets primary focus in our lives, right? So what if we miss our devotion with God or maybe we're having a busy day or we're mad at God, we don't want to talk to God, but guess what? I did my hobby, I met my friends, and I did my career. And because I got these three things done, even though these two things are the most important things in my life, I still feel satisfied or I still feel complete because I got three of the five things on the top of my list done. Family of God, I hope that this resonates with you some. I know it resonates with me because I, this is how I function or, or live my life, right? I, or have lived my life uh, before, right? All things that are important, right? You just list everything that's important. You just put it on the list and you just try to check it off. Or you can list all things that are in order, right? In order of importance and then try to go from there. Today in our passage, in our scripture, Jesus gives us a third alternative, He doesn't just tell us to list the things that are important in our life and check them off as a checklist. He doesn't just tell us to list things that are important. What Jesus tells us is something much more profound. Look with me um, in our text today at verse 35. Notice with me the question that's asked to Jesus. Excuse me, in verse 36 of our text today. The question that's asked is this, teacher... Which command in the law is the greatest? Now, notice who's asking him this question. This this question is being asked by the Pharisees. Therefore, it's a loaded question. Not just because the Pharisees are asking him this question. It's a loaded question because the Pharisees has literally categorized 613 of the laws from the Torah from the most important to the least. And they're coming to Jesus with their list. They're coming to Jesus with their list from the number, mo- the number one most important thing to number 613 uh, the, on the list. And they're saying, Jesus, which one, of the, which one of these things are most important? Can you solve the puzzle? Or as one of my favorite game shows says, are you the weakest link, right? It's the question that's being asked here. Notice in verse 35, who's asking Jesus this question? It's an expert in the law. And this question assumed an advantage for the Pharisees. This is the equivalent of me personally, me, your pastor, challenging Simone Biles to a gymnastic competition in the 2021 Olympics. This is equivalent to me challenging her and saying, hey, Simone, I challenge you to a gymnastics competition in the 2021 Olympics. That's just absurd because I would lose by just even showing up on the mat. This is equivalent to me challenging Steph Curry to a shooting contest at the NBA All-Star Weekend, right? That's just, it's just, I'm a good shooter, right, Noah? I'm a good shooter. I'm okay, right? Yeah, oh, come on, man, come on. I'm decent. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. My feelings are hurt a little bit. Thank you, Noah. I love what uh, Tony Evans says about this in his study Bible. He says this. He says, we might think that the Pharisees would have been glad to see the Sadducees silent, 
The question that the Sadducees had had always used to trap them was finally answered by Jesus. The question about the resurrection and whose wife that person would be. But the Pharisees were too proud to be impressed. This is a warning for us as a church as we look at this, what's going on in this text right here. And the warning is simple, but the warning is very concise. And here's the warning. Religion can enslave a person. Religion can enslave a person. Much like binge watching an excellent Netflix series during the Christmas holidays. Much like extending your cheat day beyond one or two days from your original commitment date. And much like trying to eat healthy on Thanksgiving Day at your grandma's house. (laughs) Religion can enslave a person. And while these things that I just wrote out, all things are important and all things are in order, is very, very important for us. It can't be the way that we simply just live our lives totally. It's a good reminder for us that a person can be so engrossed in religion, a person can be so engrossed in rituals, rules, and regulations that they either intentionally or unintentionally ignore God's intended purpose in their lives. A person can be so engrossed in theology that they ignore the people that that theology is supposed to reach. The poor, the the downtrodden, the marginalized of our society, which would have most definitely included Jesus, being him coming from the, the ghetto of Nazareth. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does Jesus provide as an antidote to the allure of legalism? What does Jesus provide as an antidote to the allure of religiosity? Look with me in verses 37 and 38. He gives us the answer right here. He says to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. So what does it mean to love God? Notice with me, notice from the very beginning, Jesus instructs us to love God. And then he invites us to love your God. Let's look at the first part. First, Jesus instructs us to love God. Jesus responds clearly and concisely. And as a son of God, he graciously invites us to love God. Now, this is counterintuitive. This is not easy math that's going on here. This is antithetical to everything that was taught in Jesus' world. In this legalistic, ritual-focused, performance-driven, consumeristic world, Jesus speaks, and what he tells the people is something so simple, but yet so profound. Love God. He he invites them to love God in, in three ways, through an invitation, a command, and a reminder. He first invites them to grow in their relationship with the creator of the universe. Now now think about this. These are the Pharisees. These are the people who have list of their list. These are the people who have 613 laws that are literally categorized from the greatest to the least. 
and he's inviting them to take their eyes off their laws, focus on the lawgiver. To take your eyes off religion, focus on relationship. So Jesus invites us to grow in a relationship with God, the creator of the universe. Secondly, he commands us to love God to the best of our ability. Notice that this is not an opinion. He says, love. This is a command. Jesus says, you love God. He commands them to love God to the best of their ability. And then lastly, he reminds them. He reminds them of God's written word because what Jesus quotes from is not something that's just abstract and something that he just picked from the air. Jesus at this moment is quoting scripture to the Pharisees. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, known as the great Shema. And in in that passage of scripture, this is what it says. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. Guys, don't don't let this fly over your head. (laughs) Don't let this fly over your head. It's too good to fly over your head. Somebody needs to catch this. Somebody needs to understand what Jesus of, of, of Nazareth is inviting us. We are invited to love God. Not rituals, not religion, not routine. Not religious deeds, not even the Torah. We we are invited to love God. It's a good question we have to ask ourselves. Man, Jesus, why are you emphasizing so much this love of God? Why, Why are you emphasizing this so much? I love what Claire Christie says in her commentary. She says, if a person loves God with all of his being, loves his fellow man, and also has a healthy respect for himself, he will keep all of God's commands. No other commandments in the summary Jesus gave will be necessary. Reducing the law to the commandment of love makes keeping God's law harder, not easier. For love demands far more than mere keeping of written rules. Love requires total submission of one's life to God. It's a good reminder for us this morning that loving God involves a personal relationship. It's not a distant relationship. It's a personal relationship. It's not impersonal. It's not distant, nor is it removed. God is near and God is, wants to have a personal relationship with us. And we can also have that relationship with him. First thing God calls us to is to love God. But but notice what he says. He doesn't just say love God. He says, love the Lord your God. So he tells us where our affection should go as far as the object, but then he connects us to that object with that personal pronoun, your. This is the gospel. Notice the gospel irony here. Notice the gospel irony The invitation is from Jesus, and he invites us to love God as our own. How ironic is that? Jesus, who's the only way, the only means by which we can be connected to God, is inviting us to God. Helps us to understand and know that sent because God wants a relationship with you, so Jesus died so that you might be able to have that relationship. 
It's a good reminder for us that God wants you to love him. He wants you to passionately and religiously pursue his presence and his glory. And listen, there, again, there's nothing wrong with having a list and there's nothing wrong with having order in our lives. But you know what this produces? This produces getting things done rather than loving the one whom we're supposed to love and we're called to love. I think there's a better way and we'll talk about what that better way looks like and what that better way is here shortly. It's a good reminder for us that loving God is an act that is alive and active and loving God is an act that's live and active, not just because loving God is it, just because it is alive. And we, we, we have a love for God that is alive and active because he is alive and he is active. Loving God is not dead. It's not inactive. And we're invited to maintain a personal relationship with God that is both alive and active. I love this because... While we often associate love with a, a feeling, being an emotion, it must be more than that because it's something that can be instructed. And not only that, love just can't be an emotion or a feeling, not only because it, it is something that can be instructed, it's also something that we are invited into. We are invited to do this by Jesus, the son of Nazareth, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So how should we love our God? How should we love him? Look at me in verse 37b. He says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Again, this is coming from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, the great Shema. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and with your strength. Notice with me the, the three-dimensional aspect of how we are to love God. And not just love God, we're instructed to love God with all of our being, our heart, our mind, our soul, and some versions even say our strength. Soul and strength can be interchangeable here. It's a good reminder for us that God won't share you with anyone Therefore, your love for him must be comprehensive. It must be whole. I love what 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says about this. It says, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Isaiah 44, 12, 22 puts it this way. It says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your son like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Revelation 5, 9 puts it this way. It says, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seal because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. <laughs> Beloved, don't forget this morning that you are, but, you're, you, that you are a blood-bought Christian <laughs> if you have placed your faith in Jesus. That your life belongs to him. And you can trust him with your life. So what does it mean to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul? All of your heart, the, the heart is simply um, the seed of man's affection and will. 
That the heart focuses on our will and our devotion. It's our want to, if you will. In other words, what, what Jesus is inviting us to is to know that our will should be aligned towards God and hit to, towards God and towards his glory alone. I love what Jeremiah 3.15 says about this. It says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. Notice what, what he means when he says all of your mind. So if the heart is the seat of man's affection, man's will, and man's devotion, the mind is the seat of reasoning and understanding. Our mind is our hidden thoughts. And it reminds us that our hidden thoughts should be centered on God. Our thoughts should be focused on God's word. I love what Psalm 119.9 says about this. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist gives the answer to that question. He says, by keeping your word, keeping your mind, keeping your focus on Jesus. Now, listen, beloved, during this season, this COVID season, things are probably not going to get better. If anything, they're going to probably get worse. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I just say that to say, man, it it doesn't look too good how, how, how things are going with numbers and also protocols that are not being put in place or protocols that are being ignored. What better time for you to grow on learning how to focus your mind on God's word? What better time is there for you to be able to take God at his word and allow God to prove himself true to you? What better time is there to memorize a scripture with your family, to memorize a scripture with your husband, to practice praying with your wife or with your children? Beloved, I know that this season is inconvenient, and it is. It's totally inconvenient for everyone involved. But this also, in this inconvenience, is also an opportunity. There's an opportunity for us to look different on the other side of this thing. As we focus ourselves on God and his word, what God's word does to us is it transforms us and it grows us and it sharpens us. And the word actually changes us. So all of your heart, all of your mind, and lastly, all of your soul. The soul is the life of a man. It is the seed of man's breath. And what what Jesus is inviting us into is that we're to love God with all the breath and all the life and all the awareness that we have. I love what Psalm 19.7 says about this. It says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect or pure, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making simple, excuse me, making wise the simple. So let's make it plain. What does a loving relationship entail? Let me give you four things. Four things. If you loving God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, what does that entail? Let me give you four things. Number one is a commitment to God. Commit yourself to God and he will act. 
for you on your behalf. This commitment should look much like marriage. Well, although there are shortcomings and although there are dreams that are maybe delayed or denied, personal dreams or collective dreams, there is still a covenant that you have with your spouse or your, significant, your, your, your spouse that you are saying, I am there for you, whether things are great or things are low. And in the same way, God has covenanted himself to us. This right here is, is, is language that speaks of a contract. <laughs> I do my part, you do your part, God. I read a little Bible, you give me a little blessing. And what God wants to do is to take us from contract to covenant. That we have a relationship with God. That God is embedding on you. God won't, 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 won't withhold from you things that are good because you're not good. And God won't give you things that are bad just because you're bad. God says, I love you because I love you. I don't love you just because you read your Bible every day. I, I, I don't hate you when you don't. I want you to love me because I am great. Not because your rituals are great. Not because your books are great. I want you to love me because I'm worthy. There, there's, there's nothing in this world that is wor more worthy than your praise than God. And let's be honest with ourselves. All of us, even if we believe God in God or not, all of us are worshiping something. We were created to worship. So if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something. And I, I pray that God will reveal that thing to you so that you can repent of that thing and allow God to take his rightful seat in your life. There's nothing else in this world that's worth, not, not children, not a husband, not your career. There's nothing that's more worthy than the worship of God. You know how I know that? Because I'm looking at a multi-generational church before me, and, and that, that, was, that, that, that I can see it right here. I see men and women who are lived decades in this world, who once had families, or, or one, excuse me, once had young children, or once had husbands who maybe have gone on to be with the Lord, but yet their love and their commitment to God remains the same. Because children may come and go, careers may come and go, finances may, may come and go, education may come and go, but God stays the same. And regardless, if there's breath in your lungs, then there should be praise in your lips to that God. Amen. So what does it entail? It, it, it entails a commitment to God. Number two, it, it, it entails trust in God. We love God because who God is. Listen, this is, this is, I say it all the time, so you probably can finish the sentence with me. That's okay. But, but we don't want to allow our circumstance to define God's character. We don't want to allow that. God can't be good because your life is good, and God can't be bad because your life is bad. We love God because of who he is, not because of simply what he does. Not simply because how he performs. 
or what he's provided. God is good because he is good. Not because of the good things he gives to me or because I am good because of his goodness. Even if I am a wretch, which I, we all have been and we all are, God is still good. Amen. Commitment to God, trusting God, giving for God. This is talking about the drive. The drive is to give of oneself, to, to surrender oneself to the other, not to take and to conquer. To give yourselves as these deacons, these men and women who have come up and have now been officially installed within our church. Deacons simply means servant. They, they are literally the, the servants of the church. And lastly, we don't just want to commit. We don't just want to trust. We don't want to just give. But lastly, we want to share ourselves with God. We are to know and share with God, learning, growing, working, even serving ever closely with him. And notice what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, this is the greatest and most important commandment. So Jesus, why? Why is this the greatest and most important commandment? Why is loving God the most important thing? The answer is quite simple. Because love for God is expressed when you obey his commands. I love John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. First John 5, 3 says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commandments are not a burden. Leon Morris writes this in his commentary about, these, about this section of scripture. He says, the commandments of God are serious and, and must be observed. But Jesus is saying that it is only when we love that we can truly obey them. And that without love, we do not really understand what the commandments mean. In one way or another, all the commandments are expressions of God's love. Love is the thrust of them all. And it is only as we love that we fulfill them. It's good. No, notice with me here that... <laughs> Jesus says this is the greatest and most important command because love is man's chief duty. It is the chief duty of man and of humanity. I love how Brian Chappell says in my favorite book, Unlimited Grace, what he says about this. He says, the most powerful human motivation is love. Guilt is not stronger. Fear is not stronger. Gain is not stronger. What drives a mother back into a burning building? Love for her children. Such love is stronger than self-protection self-promotion, or self-preservation. Such love finds its highest satisfaction and greatest fulfillment in protecting, promoting, and preserving its object. A Christian for whom love for God is the highest priority is also the person most motivated and enabled to serve the purpose of God. So who should benefit from the love that we receive from God? If God is Loving God is the greatest and most important commandment. Who should receive the benefit of us from loving God? Notice with me in verse 39. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets depends on these two. Before we go to that next section, I want to complete our analogy really quick. So if we look at this, this list again, all things important, all things in order, We'll put here all things centered. And I would invite you, 
If you've been walking and looking at your relationship with God as just being one among the most important things in your life, or if you prioritize God as being the most important thing, but sometimes you get to it or sometimes you, not, you, don't, you don't get to it, I invite you to a third way of looking at this. A third way of understanding this is simply this. Putting a circle in the middle, God, and allowing everything else in your, in your world to flow out of that. Regardless if it's family, regardless if it's friends, regardless if it's career, or regardless if it's your hobbies. What Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to understand and what he's inviting us to understand and to acknowledge is that unless God is the center of your life, unless he's the epicenter of all that you do, then what we do can be misplaced and it can be misappropriated because of sin. Love this. He says, who should benefit from our love? Who should benefit from what we receive from God? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to be honest here and be, be straightforward because some of us don't love ourselves enough. There might be an aspect where you're thinking, man, love my neighbor as myself. Honestly, I have a hard time loving me. I have a hard time liking what I see in the mirror. I have a hard time, honestly, just liking myself. How in the world am I supposed to love somebody else? Like, am I supposed to love them like I love me? If, that, if that's the case, that's not going to be too good, right? And I don't mean that to be, to be laughable situation. I want to be honest about that. So some of us don't love ourselves enough, and then some of us love ourselves too much, <laughs> right? We, we, we love caring for ourselves. We, we love doing for ourselves. We love pampering ourselves. And Listen, there's nothing wrong with that unless it goes to, uh, over, over uh, if it's overdone and overly, overly done in a consumeristic way. And honestly, for you who maybe love yourself too much, you might be thinking, man, I can't love somebody the way I love me because, one, it's going to be tired. I'm going to get tired. And two, I can't afford to do that. (laughs) So what does it mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means two things. For those who love themselves too much, I want to remind you that this is not self-love. This is not an invitation to self-indulgence. This is not an opportunity for you to recreate others in your own image or to make the world revolve around you or your program or your agenda. Self-love entails that you want all the attention, that, that, that you're focused on yourself. Self-love means that you, you, you push yourself forward into the limelight. Self-love means that you insist on your own way. And any deviation from your way is always the wrong way. Self-love demands and reveals in recognition. And self-love shows conceit and ignores others when it doesn't get that recognition. God isn't calling us to self-love, but he's calling us to a selfless love. For those of you who love yourselves too little, I love what the preacher outlined sermon Bible says about this. It says, it is a love of Christ. It is the love of Christ for us, his death and sacrifice, that compels us to go and love all men everywhere. Do you hear that? 
We, we are not to love people with the love that we simply have for ourselves. We are to love with Christ's love. We just sang it earlier with Liz Vice song, Empty Me Out. Right? Empty me out, God, and allow people to experience you through me. It's a good reminder for us that we're called to pursue the well-being of others. In the same way that you might wish that someone would do for you, even though they might not be able to. Loving your neighbor as yourself includes pursuing the well-being of others. I love what Tony Evans says in the study Bible about this. He says, to love your neighbor is to make the decision to compassionately and righteously pursue his or her well-being. When you love others, God will boomerang it back to you and provide you with a deeper experience of him. Notice with me that a profession of love without demonstration is empty, is void, and it's lacking. And it's a good reminder for us everywhere in this church, if you're under the sound of my voice, please listen to what I'm about to say right now. The opposite of love is not hate, but the opposite of love is apathy. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is actually doing nothing. And Jesus exemplifies for us how to be engaged with those who disagree with us. This is the third time that these men, these Sadducees, these Pharisees have tried to trap him. And Jesus, as he talks about God and loving him and loving his neighbor as yourself, he is exemplifying the very thing that he's talking about as he preaches and engages with them. Sometimes God doesn't call us always to run away from a fight. Sometimes God calls us to confront the wrongs of this world with the grace and the presence of God. And you know what I love about this church is that I see many of you that I'm looking at right now who have been faced with some very hard and difficult situations in your life. And you faced it with the grace, the power, and the presence of God. You haven't tried away from it. You haven't run away from it. But you're standing there in the power and the grace and the presence of God, pointing even your adversaries to the very God you love. I love that. I love that. And I, I ask and I pray that that will continue. That will continue. 1 John 4, 20 puts it this way. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's good for reminded for us that love is not, known, is not known without showing it. Love for God acts. And therefore, loving our neighbor is what proves our love for God. Listen to me. Loving our neighbor. That word is used ambiguously on purpose. Loving our neighbor is what proves our love for God. Not what, not what your morning devotions, not, not your morning rituals. Do you love your neighbor? Your neighbor who disagrees with you. Your, man, your neighbor who may not think the exact way with you. Your neighbor who might say, 
Black Lives Matter. Do you love your neighbor? That Republican or that Democrat? That conservative or that liberal? Do you love your neighbor? And by God's grace and for his glory, we will be a church that learns and commits ourselves to loving our neighbor even when we have differences with our neighbors. Because in doing so, we are embodying and we are exemplifying the glory and the majesty of Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't need you guys to look like me or think like me or be me as your pastor. You know what I need you to do? Love God. Love God with all your being. Not perfectly. Love God. Right where you are. You may not talk to God all this week. It may be, you may be in a place in God, you don't even want to talk to God. Admit that to him. Say, Father, it's just, I haven't talked to you in such a long time because honestly, I've allowed my circumstances to define your character. Talk to him. Let him know. Daddy, COVID hurts. I'm, 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 I'm actually weeping every day because the thought of I can't be around my family for Thanksgiving, it kills me inside. My husband doesn't know about it. My wife doesn't know about it, but it's killing me, God. I really am, am mourning this Thanksgiving holiday because I can't be around those. I always look forward to it, God, and this year it just looks different. Maybe your finances are going astray. Listen. I don't need you to look like me. I don't need you to think like me. I don't need you to be, I need you to love God and I need you to love your neighbor as yourself. If we do those two things, all 613 laws that the Pharisees categorize will be fulfilled by God's grace and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you and you are a good, good father. We thank you, God, that you time and time again challenge us to follow your lead. And I thank you, God, that you don't call us to do something that you haven't done yourself. You had every right to look at the Pharisees and to, and to call them anything that you wanted to. But you took the time to engage with them in hopes that they would surrender to the same gospel that we have surrendered to today. Thank you, God, for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. Father, forgive us when we allow rules and we allow rituals to come in between our relationship with you. For, forgive us, God, for measuring, up, up, measuring what we do as being the standard of your perfection and your holiness and then measuring that upon others who don't do the things that we do. Father, forgive us. Stand before you, God, as your humble people asking God that you would create within us a clean heart and renew the right spirit within us. Oh God, we need you. We don't want to just talk about you. We want to know you, the one true living God. Help us in our weakness in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, 
info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.